Mike and Tim here. We've got kind of an extra special episode uh, for you. This was Tim's idea. Uh, some of you know this, I know, but some of you may not know that in my previous life, I was a public speaker. I, I was a pastor of, of uh, I had the privilege of being a pastor at several churches in Southern California. And I gave these weekend talks that in church culture are called sermons. And um, I, you know, there is, I don't know, 15, 20 years worth of these floating around various church websites. And so Tim had this great idea. So Tim, you want to share a little bit about what we're going to do? Yeah, so I was, I attended one of Mike's churches years ago. And then as we moved out of the area, we tried to keep track and uh, follow <laughs> along online via uh, websites to the sermons. And then we started mailing them around to other people and uh, mailed them. Yeah. Well, I guess that's not true. I guess we don't mail things anymore. Emailed. Well, we okay. emailed them around Yes. To, to other folks sharing them. And then I was going through my computer and found, uh, I was looking for a specific one and I found a few uh, that I thought were really good. And like Mike just said, a lot of you guys don't know Mike as a traditional teacher in this sense. And there is a lot of great, cool content. This is an episode on <laughs> prayer that my wife and I probably listened to four or five times in the last couple of weeks trying to internalize it and apply it. Um, I thought it was just really, it was very helpful. And I thought, I bet you there's a lot of people out there in the Vox community that would benefit from listening to this. And it kind of gives a new dynamic to, to Vox as well. So, so you can tell we pay Tim very well to say such nice things. But um, I, I was kind of conflicted about it just because the assumptions I carry into a Sunday morning sermon at a church are very, very different than the assumptions I carry into a podcast conversation. And so my fear was, uh, I don't know, just sounding preachy or maybe even, you know, five years later, I'd say things a little differently. Uh, but Tim is so kind and gracious. He's like, he asked me if I wanted to listen. I said, absolutely not. No way, <laughs> no way, no way. Uh, but on the off chance, this could be helpful to somebody. Um, we're we're going to go ahead and uh, and release this into the wild. It was on Hutzpah, right? Is that yep. the one? Yes. Um, Shameless Hutzpah. Audacity. Yes. The title of the sermon. Shameless Audacity. And it's something I learned from many, you know, many of my mentors about the way the Jews prayed. And, um, you know, the best example of this is Abraham negotiating with God uh, over Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we are, I think it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, all right, we, if you find 10 righteous people, if you find, you know, yeah, he yeah. starts at like 50 and he works his way down to 10. <laughs> and that's what chutzpah was. It was a in those days, it was very positive. Um, the woman that interrupts uh, the dinner party where Jesus, you know, is, is eating and, and yes. washes his feet. I mean, that's chutzpah, the people that tear a hole in the roof. Yes. And Jesus seemed to really love this. Uh, and respond to it. And um, and so anyway, I, I don't even remember much more beyond that, but hope it's helpful. Again, if if uh, this is this is a sermon for church folk, and if, if that's not you, you know, feel free to enjoy it and glean whatever you can from it. But just know the assumptions I carry into it 
are very different from the assumptions I would make of a Vox audience. And so, yeah, and let us uh, know too if this is something that you guys are into and, and is yeah. cool and can be something that we do every now and then as a little bonus episode. Um, you know, give us feedback, let us know. Give us feedback, and particularly if Tim has poor choice, he has poor choices in sermons. Yes. So, you know, maybe. Although that would reflect worse on you than me, so please let me know if that case is bad. (laughs) Hey, at this point, you know, you can podcast Francis Chan or Beth Moore or Tim Keller. So, you know, you're not stuck anymore. So that's that's awesome. But anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Here you go, friends. Thank you much. We are meandering through the book of Luke. We're hovering over. Uh, a question that Jesus answers in Luke chapter 11. Go there if you would, verse 1. We'll have the Bible up on the screen if uh, you want to follow along and don't have one with you. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And if you remember last week we saw the Jewish world was immersed in prayers. So the teach us to pray question was a little surprising in that there was something about Jesus then that was unique in this world of Jewish praying. Jesus responded by saying, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. We suggested last week that this was actually an abbreviation of a much longer Jewish prayer called the Amidah, and this was very often abbreviated by different rabbis, and that's why there's a version of it in Matthew that's a little different from a version in Luke, and this would have been all normal, expected kind of Jewish stuff. But to underscore the importance of prayer, Jesus doesn't stop with giving them the concepts, the skeleton of praying. He underscores the importance of it. Now listen. I know we got ushers floating around. Here's the, here's the point this morning. All right, I'm going to spend the next 35 minutes making one very simple point. God responds to human prayer. There, the thing that kills prayer more than anything else in the world is the idea that God's going to do whatever he wants, and we just kind of ask as just this religious exercise that's for us. Uh, I actually want to make the case, no, 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 God doesn't change when we pray, but things change when we pray. And there are good things that God wants to do, but doesn't because we haven't prayed. And there are bad things that God would prevent if we prayed for their prevention. I think it is that literally that important. Not everyone will agree with this, but when has that ever stopped us? And so again, the goal is never for you to agree with me. The goal is for you to be stimulated into your own thought and research. So Jesus, after he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer, he tells a couple of stories that undergird the importance of prayer. He says, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your, and then what's it say? Shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us in the world of 7-Eleven, in a world of um, fast food all night long, in a world of grocery stores that are open late. But back in the day, you would very often travel in the desert uh, at night. 
So uh, you may come upon a village where you have a friend. Uh, the village is asleep. Obviously, you didn't have electricity. You knock on the door of your friend. And the rules governing ancient Near Eastern culture regarding hospitality were hugely important and significant. You were obligated, the honor of your village demanded that you were obligated to throw a very nice meal for the person that shows up at midnight. And part of that meal required bread. In fact, some rabbis taught if the meal didn't have bread, it wasn't really a meal at all. So you don't have any laying around. You don't have a refrigerator. So you get up, and in the name of the honor of your village, you go next door to your friend. You knock on the little door. The friend inside, Jesus says, says, don't bother me, we're sleeping. Now, it's important to understand that, that Jesus is actually making this worse than it would normally be. Normally what would happen is the same obligation that the friend feels to throw the meal, that other friend would feel too and would readily share. But in this case, Jesus is using a negative object lesson, so he paints the guy more contemptible than normal by having this guy say, I don't even want to get up and help because it's going to wake my kids up. Because it's not like you had massive bedrooms. You were sleeping on the floor all next to each other in the same room you did everything else in. Now, the point Jesus wants to make is that he says, I tell you, it's not because of friendship that this guy will ultimately get up and give you bread. But it's because of something called shameless audacity that the guy will respond. Now, if you're a bit confused about this argument, shameless audacity, there's a big debate over what that word means. Some translate persistence. I'm kind of with this translation, shameless audacity, because I think underneath the Greek word is a Hebrew word that's called chutzpah. Have you heard this word before? We we would translate it... um, Nerve, gall. Uh, when somebody says, oh, the nerve of that person, right? That's, that's chutzpah. It's, it's audacity. It's boldness. It's outrageousness. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, it's not for friendship's sake that the guy who doesn't want to get up is going to ultimately get up. It's because of the chutzpah of the guy standing on his porch saying, hey, I need help. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here that ultimately the guy will get up and give bread. Are you following so far? Okay, five of us, 11, 30. Oh, the heat must be suffocating us. Now, so Jesus is making a point. It's not just giving us the skeleton of a prayer. He's saying, listen, there's something about praying that God wants to encourage in the telling of these stories. In fact, Jesus goes on. He says, so I tell you, verse 9, ask and it will be given to you. So this is coming right on the heels of a story about somebody knocking and asking. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, fathers, if your son asks for a fish, which is a clean animal, will give him a snake instead, an unclean animal. Or if your son asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you were evil, thanks Jesus, and by evil he, he not only means fallen, but he means human, mortal, flesh and blood. If you then, though you were flawed and fallen, know how to give good gifts to your children, what's it say? How much more does your Father in heaven know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, Jesus is doing something. Look at me for a second. This is so incredibly important. Don't miss it. 
When I hear the question, how do I pray? I filter that through the grid of how do I get my prayers answered? That's what I mean. Because that is what I think the goal of prayer is, right? I I ask for things. God gives things. I want to know, like, what are the words, the formula? How much faith do I have to have to get the thing I want? That's not how Jesus answers the question. Jesus doesn't tell us how to get our prayer answered. He just reminds us who we're praying to. Now, do you see the vast difference between those conversations? I want to have a conversation about how do I get my prayer answered. Jesus wants to have a conversation about who you're talking with when you pray. Jesus is framing this in terms of covenant like we talked about last week. I want to frame it in terms of contract. What do do I have to put in to get out something from God? Jesus reframes the conversation entirely about talking about the goodness of the Father, and he uses two stories to do it. The first story, he says, listen, Jesus is using a very common rabbinical technique that that contrasts something light and something weighty. And usually the, the, the transitional phrase between the light and the weighty is how much more. So Jesus says, listen, If if a a selfish friend will be moved by chutzpah to give you bread, how much more will a good God in heaven be moved by chutzpah? If a father or a mother, they know how to give good gifts to their kids, how much more will a good father in heaven know how to give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask. Are you following me on the argument so far? Now, this is incredibly important because the conversation about prayer I want to have is how do I get it answered? The conversation about prayer that Jesus wants to have is about who you're talking to. And evidently, because you're talking to your father, chutzpah is encouraged. And I want to show you places all throughout the Gospel of Luke where chutzpah was put on display, and then ask the question, did Jesus change? Has he changed? Because chutzpah isn't just something that was demonstrated in prayer. In fact, chutzpah became synonymous with faith. Chutzpah is what faith looks like when it's taken really seriously. So go to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at five quick stories. I have a gift of overmaking points. This point will be overmade. Yep, it's exciting. But but here's the thing. If, If you are in any way, shape, or form interested in or committed to this Jesus, you have to understand this particular point. Jesus is the definitive revelation of the Father God in heaven. How Jesus responds is how the Father responds. What Jesus encourages us to do, therefore, is incredibly significant. I was taught in church to pray politely with lots of qualifications. That's not in the Bible. The Bible's prayers are full of lament and anger and disappointment and joy and sadness and sorrow and just awesome and where are you? But our churches aren't full of these prayers. Our churches are still convinced, nope, the way to pray is, okay, God, maybe if you're interested, could you take a moment just to consider my plea? That's not chutzpah. And so I want to just show you examples of chutzpah in action. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, we've looked at this story before a couple of times, and I just want to remind you that if you were a leper, your job was not to ever approach 
crowds. Jesus had attracted a crowd. You were to warn people of your coming by shouting unclean, unclean if they came within 100 feet of you. This guy somehow finagles his way through the crowd to get to Jesus close enough so that Jesus will actually touch him in a moment. And he falls face down and he begs. When was the last time you were face down begging God for something? I can't remember a time. I just sit properly, use nice English. If, I, if I'm really serious, maybe bust out a little King James. The, O oh Lord, and nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, so often our quest in prayer is to find the magic combination that will get God to do what we ask. And yet, what we see all over the Gospels are just messy people standing in the shamelessness of their requesting. He falls face down and he begs. God, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The text says Jesus reached out his hand, he touched the man, and we've talked about how huge a deal that was. And he says, I am willing. Be clean. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee, from Judea, Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was there with Jesus to heal the sick. You remember this. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus, but they could not do it because it was so crowded. And so what do they do? They dig a hole through the roof of the house and lower the man down in front of Jesus. Now, would you agree that's a, an example of chutzpah? Would you agree with that? Right? You don't, that's brazen, that's take, that takes guts, right? But there was something. So we're going to dig a hole, and we've talked about this before. Jesus sees the faith that led them to do that, and he says, okay, paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven. And just so you know, I have authority to forgive the guy's sins, I'm going to heal him too. See, Jesus was never put off by chutzpah. Never. Go, if you would, to chapter 7, verse 36. You remember this woman that interrupts a dinner party. I just want to ask you, do your prayers sound anything like any of this? Or are they just nice and polished and clean? We always say please and thank you. And yes, I'm all for it. I'm just, I'm speaking hyperbolically to try to make a point because I think so many of us miss this. That God, as an expression of his sovereignty, responds to prayer. He's oriented the world in such a way that he responds to requesting. He's not up there just going to do what he's going to do. That's true of some things. The sun's going to rise today. You don't have to ask. Gravity, check. Jesus is going to return. Yep. God wins. You bet. But in smaller arenas, our prayers matter. And it's not just the nice death by thousand qualification kind of praying that matters. It's the shameless asking that matters. Notice verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner, and we we talked about if a Pharisee was at dinner, all, all the rules of ceremonial washing and cleansing that were applied to priests at the temple, these guys would have insisted on it. It was a huge, big ritual process to do this, all right? So it's a very formal setting. Jesus is reclining at the house, and a woman, verse 37, in that town who lived a sinful life, she didn't screw up, she didn't make a mistake once, she was notoriously sinful. When that kind of woman learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she came there with a jar of perfume. She interrupts the dinner party. She stands behind him at his feet. She begins to weep. 
The dinner party comes crashing to a screeching halt. Conversation dies. She undoes her hair because her tears are wetting Jesus' feet. Undoing your hair would have been scandalous. She's now wiping his feet off with her hair, and she begins to kiss them. You weren't allowed to touch a rabbi as a woman in this situation, let alone a sinner. This is so scandalous, all of the religious folk at the dinner table are upset at Jesus for letting this happen. Religious people love propriety. They insist on it. Jesus, however, looks at the religious guy and says, Hey, let me tell you a story that connects being forgiven much and loving much. This woman, she's shown me great kindness. And he looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Has Jesus changed over the course of 2,000 years? Is he now up there saying, nope, here are the hoops you've got to go through? Or is this the same Jesus? Go if you would to chapter 8. I'm overmaking. Two more. I don't care. Chapter 8, verse 42. If you don't believe this, it's the death of prayer. It's that simple. If you don't believe something legitimately hangs on whether or not you are praying, then you won't. You may do it as an exercise of piety. You may do it because that's what good Christians do. But you won't actually believe it's urgently important. Verse 42. Jesus is on his way to heal a young uh, little girl. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. That's how many people were surrounding Jesus. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding. All right, so some sort of feminine issue for 12 years, but no one could heal her. Now, you have to understand, under Levitical law, this woman was unclean. Her clothes were unclean. Anything she touched was unclean. Anything her clothes touched were unclean. Her, anything she sat on was unclean. Anything she came into contact with, unclean. And this woman, with chutzpah, is negotiating a way through a crowd that was almost crushing Jesus. So that, verse 44, she came out behind him and touched the edge of his cloak rendering him unclean, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Jesus says, who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, duh. A lot of people are touching you right now. Jesus said, no, 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 something something big happened. The woman comes forward and fearfully, and he looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Jesus was never put off by this. One last one, just because we can. Luke 18. That's right. Luke 18. Verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard the ruckus, the man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those leading the way commanded the man to be quiet. Isn't that what the religious people do? When faced with mess, nah, we have to insist on politeness. They tried to shush him up, but what's the text say? What did the guy do instead? What did he do? He shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stops and asks the question we'd all want Jesus to ask. 
What do you want me to do for you? I want to see. Receive your sight. Has Jesus changed? If Jesus is the definitive revelation of the Father, then when Jesus says, ask and keep asking, knock and keep knocking, seek and keep seeking, because God answers. Which of you, even though you're frail and fallen, you love to give gifts. Well, how much more so than God? Right? How much more than God? And you... Suppose you have a friend that's selfish and doesn't want to help out. Because of the shamelessness of your request, oh, how much more then will God respond to that kind of requesting? Now, I hear all the objections and I have them too. Yeah, but God, I don't, when I seek, I don't always find. And when I knock, it's not always opened. And we're going to talk about that in two weeks. Why does God not answer prayer? Well, he answers, but man, I don't like his answers. Right? So we're going to talk about this. But you will find the door will be opened and he will answer. I just don't like what happens after that sometimes. But for now, let the mystery sit for a second. I just want to say our Bible is full of prayers of audaciousness and our churches aren't. And I want to just say why. Are we just convinced that God's going to do whatever he's going to do and our prayers don't matter? I just hear that so much. So I I just want to say, Jesus says it. He responds to chutzpah. Prayer works. It matters. Go if you would. Uh, Turn your eyes to the screen. Over making a point, James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? This is James writing to a series of churches. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Yep. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Hopefully no one's done that here. If so, so, um, please identify yourself in this moment. (laughs) You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So what's God's answer to coveting? You do not have because what? You do not ask God. Now that's about as clear as it can get, correct? And... When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, isn't this true with our children? Aren't our children full of chutzpah? I mean, it would be like mounting a polar expedition every time we would step out the door with the amount of luggage we would have with three kids. Right? You'd have multiple diaper bags carrying multiple diapers, changes of clothing in case there were blowouts. You'd have thousands of wipes available at a moment's notice. Right? You would have sippy cups and then backup sippy cups. You'd have sippy bowls with goldfish and pretzel sticks. And you would just, you carry around all of this because you know five minutes into wherever you're going, the requesting will begin to happen. Children are shameless when it comes to their requesting, correct? And they never, they never look at you and say, hey, dad, I know you're a man of limited resources. <laughs> right? They never, they never look at you and say, hey, I know this is really inconvenient. So I'll, I, I just want to let you know I'm hungry. So whenever you get a moment, maybe we could eat. No, it's just constant. It's nonstop. 
And when Jesus says you have to enter into the kingdom like a child, we have an image of children that is just serene and quiet. Jesus would have had an image of children that was noisy and bothersome. Because remember, later in the gospel, the children are crowding around Jesus so much, the disciples are pushing them away. And Jesus gets angry and says, no, no, you actually got to be like this. Maybe there's something that children have that we must relearn. And that is simply this, the awareness that their parents have anything, everything that they could possibly want, and all they have to do is ask. Now, they pout, they whine, they manipulate, I got it. So do we. And God raises us into maturity like we do them. But there's something about standing in the power of shamelessly asking that they embody. So James says, you're quarreling and you're fighting. Ask God for what you want. Don't fight over it. But even when you ask, and we'll talk about this, why God doesn't answer every prayer. In the same way you're going to say no, and the worst thing you could do for your kid is to say yes to everything, the worst thing God could do for you is say yes to every prayer you pray, correct? How many, I am thankful for many unanswered prayers, or prayers that were answered with a no. Now that's easy to say when you're not in the middle of something you desperately want changed, but still doesn't change the truthfulness of what Christ is indicating the relationship turns out to be. Or James talks about sickness. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. Why not just heal him, God? I mean, just do it. Why do we have to pray and have it happen, right? Just do it directly. Oh, you're sick, healed. Oh, you're tired, healed. Big tired, healed. Big yawn. And I don't blame you. It's hot. I'm boring. But notice, why pray for healing? The prayer of a righteous person is what? Powerful and effective. Would you choose those two words to use if God was just going to do whatever he was going to do anyway? No, you wouldn't choose those words. Or, or how about in 2 Kings? This is a very famous Old Testament episode. In those days, King Hezekiah became ill at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and with chutzpah prayed to the Lord, remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had even made it to the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him and and said, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says, I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will what? Heal you. Okay. So God is sovereign. God knew there would be a prayer. Okay. But if this is all you had, what conclusion would you draw about praying? What conclusion would you draw from all of this scripture? What conclusion? That God answers You have not because you ask not, at least with some things. Or how about in Genesis where Abraham negotiates with God like you would negotiate with an auto manufacturer? I mean, this is absolutely silly. God is intent on destroying Sodom. Abraham, verse 23, Abraham approached God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? The Lord said, all right, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place. Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold... As to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? 45, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? If I find 45 people there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to God, what if there are only 40? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. May I speak to the Lord? May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if there are only 30? I will not do it if I find 30. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20? For the sake of 20, I will not do it. May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What about 10? Now, again, God is sovereign. He, his will will be done. But there is also another truth that's held parallel to that one. Namely, that human prayer changes things. That there is work that is accomplished when human beings pray. And God responds that there are things that would happen, but don't because humans haven't prayed. And there are things that happen that God wouldn't want because human beings didn't pray to stop them. I think it's that important. I think it's that significant. I mean, we could look at the very famous prayer of Moses in Exodus where God says, I'm going to destroy those people and start over with you. And Moses says, yeah, but what would the Egyptians think? And so God relents. Or you could go to Ezekiel where God determines to punish one of the kingdoms of Israel. And he's looking for a man to stand in the gap, but no one can be found. And so he punishes the people. Or you could go to Jeremiah where three times, this is brilliant, three times God says to the prophet Jeremiah, don't pray. Because I don't want, I want to punish these people, so don't pray that I wouldn't. Okay. Now again, I get it that those are partial revelations and the fullnesses of Jesus. I get all of that. And I also get that very often God is portrayed to us in human terms so that we can understand. I totally get that. But what is the obvious and natural conclusion that you draw from all of this? That there are things that happen when we pray. And that is, if you come away with anything, my prayer is that you would come away with some sense of urgency. That that what we're doing here is significant. Now, the question then becomes, my goodness, I'm running late, I'm sorry. The question then becomes, why does God set it up this way? I mean, if if he allows us to have a bit of say-so in this world, why does he set it up this way? Why have an arrangement like prayer to begin with? And the answer in three minutes, I think, is this. From the very beginning, God has been looking for cooperative participants in his world, not puppets. So he creates the world. Let there be light, there was light. Let there be seas, there were seas. Let the sea teem with living creatures, and there they were. And then he creates a man and a woman. And he, you know what he says to them? Care for the earth. Fill it. Subdue it. Rule it. Do something with it. Could God have done all of that better? 
Could God have done all of that better? Of course. And yet, as an expression of his sovereignty, he delegates just a tiny little bit of it to them. So that they would take creation and go somewhere with it. What's God's desire? God's desire from the very beginning was cooperative participants. Why does God, when he takes the nation of Israel out of slavery, he puts them in the promised land. Why does God make Israel fight their own battles? Why couldn't God just go ahead, obliterate all the nations? Why do we have this very famous scene where Israelites are at war and when Moses' arms are raised up in a posture of supplication, they win. And when his arms get tired and lower, they lose. See, to me, that's what God's looking for. The whole story. Why is it that at the end of every gospel, there is a commissioning for the church to go out and be bearers of the good news of Jesus? Jesus could do it better himself. Right? Why not just write it across the sky? Hey, I'm God. I'm real. Turn or burn, baby. Get right or get left, as the old t-shirt used to say. Why entrust it to us to some degree or another? It's the same reason he invites us to pray. His goal for you is to be a cooperative participant who is trustworthy with his power. Prayer is the way you practice that. Because in prayer, you step in to the big kingdom story God is writing. You place your little speck of influence, your little speck of concern, your little speck of requesting uh, up against the great and magnificent character of God and the great and wide biblical narrative of God. And what you're doing is you're learning to give expression, to have desire shaped and formed, to have character built so that you can sustain the use of spiritual power so that when God does say yes and say yes, he will. The results are totally consistent with his character, and you have learned to be safe with his power and authority. See, this has nothing to do with getting what you want. This has everything to do with who you're talking to. And brothers and sisters, I firmly believe, deeply believe, that what God's looking for from you, from you, literally each and every one of you, is that you would participate with him in his work. And to allow for that to happen, you have to have some small amount of say-so. Prayer becomes the place where that say-so is filtered through the good nature and purposes of God. So that you become safe with it. Now, I wish I had this down myself. Chutzpah. I've had to learn it the hard way. I, came convinced, I became convinced several years ago that God heals people. Now, I knew it theoretically, but I believe that you should pray for healing. Now, that may be a no-duh statement to you. For me, it was big news. So I started to pray for healing for people. And guess what happened? Nothing. Not a darn thing. I remember growing up, we had this guy stand up. He'd just been diagnosed with cancer. He says, I tell you, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I will be healed of this cancer. He said it in front of the whole church. And a month later, he was dead. And I just remember thinking, hmm. So I would pray very qualified prayers for healing. God, you are the great physician. I know you can do it. You may not want to. But it'd be great if you'd consider healing this person. But you will be done. I've stopped praying that way. 
I've learned to pray more audaciously. God, I really don't understand why you wouldn't do this. It seems like it'd be in your best interest to do it. Do you know how much faith would be built if somebody like this got out of their wheelchair? If somebody like this could actually seek? If somebody like this didn't have to live under pain? Why won't you do this? Heal them in Jesus' name. And I don't give any qualification. Now guess what's happened? Nothing. I get so frustrated with God. So frustrated. Seriously, there are times I'm so discouraged. Even yesterday, we're at a marital conference in Long Beach. A woman comes up, and she, is, she wants healing. And I've been so beat up by not seeing it that I wanted to hedge. And I wanted to qualify and disclaim. And in that moment, I kid you not, God asked me, do you believe I am a good father? Yes, Lord. Then pray with chutzpah. All right. See, it's nothing about the requesting at that moment. It's about who you're talking to. And I've come to see him good in ways I would have never seen him good otherwise. Not because he's answered, but because of the way I've learned to ask. Now, I believe he's answered. But he's not answered the way I want answered, which is right there. I want to see a limb extend right there. I want to see somebody who could not walk, walk. I want that. And I'm going to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking. And we'll talk about why that doesn't and appeal to mystery. But brothers and sisters, today, could we just be a little shameless in our praying?